Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, this class. We thank you for the opportunity to freely meet and uh, discuss your word and learn about you. I pray that you would give me wisdom in the words that you would have me say and that you would separate the wheat from the chaff uh, as we talk tonight and uh, that you would just superintend our thoughts and our hearts uh, as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I was thinking we lost a few. I thought maybe last week did a couple of you in because I I dumped a lot of stuff on you guys last week. So let's summarize last week just briefly. We talked about the Trinity both from an ontological perspective and an economic perspective. And I used the Latin phrases ad intra and ad extra. Those are phrases you're going to see if you read about the Trinity. Ad intra, basically speaking about the Trinity internally. Ad extra, speaking about the Trinity as it relates to creation and the drama of redemption. We talked about the personal properties within the Trinity being primarily identified as paternity, filiation or sonship, and spiration or procession. We talked about the mutual indwelling and interpenetration of the three persons of the Trinity. And the word that's used to describe that is perichoresis. We talked about the eternal generation of the Son, His eternal Sonship. And lastly, we talked about the hypostatic union, which is the union of two natures in the one hypostasis, Jesus Christ. But we stopped before I got to finish. So I have to have one more technical point to go over. And then we'll, we'll do what I had intended for this lesson is look at some modern developments in the Trinity. One more technical point. And I call it two-will Christology. Because you can grasp that. Two-will Christology. We're talking about Doctrine of Christ, and we're talking about a two-will doctrine. What you'll read in the books is diathelitism. From the Greek, dio, meaning two, and thelimita, meaning wills. So that's just a fancy way, technical way of saying two wills. And that's what we're talking about. It was articulated after the Creed of Chalcedon, or the Council of Chalcedon that we talked about last week at the Third Council of Constantinople, and it was called in response to a one-will controversy, monothelite, one will. And here's the issues. In his one person, Jesus Christ has two wills, divine and human, which correspond to his two natures, divine and human. Last thing we talked about last week was the hypostatic union, the joining of two natures in the one person, Jesus Christ. Following that pronouncement, there began to be discussions about, well, does Jesus Christ, he has two natures, but does he just have one will or two wills? And the orthodox doctrine settled on the view that he has two wills. And they argued primarily from the doctrine of 
salvation. And I'll show you how that came about. But in saying, in saying that Jesus Christ had two wills, divine and human, which correspond to his two natures, divine and human, what they are saying is that the will is properly viewed as a property of nature, not person. Christ is one person, but he had two natures. So when you say he had two wills that correspond to those two natures, you're saying will is properly identified with nature, not person. And, of course, the opposing uh, fathers at that time were saying, no, I think he has one will. He does have two natures, divine and human, but he only has one will. So let's talk a little more about that. This is kind of where the church fathers were arguing from, looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Right? Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the uh, Cappadocian fathers, he was present at the uh, uh, 381 Council of uh, Constantinople that uh, ratified the uh, Nicene Creed. He said this, which plays right into the issue that we're talking about. That which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Okay? And many years later, Maximus the Confessor, this is nearing the time of this following creed we're going to be talking about, recognized that sin entered the world through human will at the fall. And that in accordance with Gregory, therefore the Son must have assumed a human will in order to redeem it. This is consistent with Scripture where there is a distinction made between the wills of the Father and Christ during His earthly ministry, for example. We've seen verses like from the Garden of Gethsemane that would lead you to say there's a distinction in wills. But I think the way we need to look at it and the way the church fathers looked at it was the Word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to his Father, all that he had decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Do you see the distinction? If he has two wills, his divine will is never at odds with the Father because this is a triune God we're talking about. If he has only, Let me back up. If he has only one will, what is that will? It must be his divine will. The divine will can never be at odds with the Father's will. The divine Son's will can never be at odds with the Father's will. That's my contention. That's the church Father's contention. But, if he has a human will that goes along with his human nature, and his divine will is associated with his divine nature, then it helps us explain why we see these things in Scripture. Because he is, he is willing humanly in obedience to his Father. We know that at the Incarnation, we see verses that talk about Jesus Christ 
growing in wisdom, learning obedience, suffering temptation, and crying out, not my will, but yours be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. But that is not Christ's divine will that's at odds with the Father's will. That's his human will, which is learned obedience and is expressing that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like I mentioned before, will is here regarded as a property of nature, not a property of person. Christ is one person but has two natures and two wills that correspond to those two natures. Just as with our triune God having one nature and being, remember now, God has one nature and one being and one divine will, even though there are three hypostases or three persons in the Trinity, they share the same will. So from an orthodox creedal standpoint, we can say it this way, and I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. This is from uh, Alexander Hodge in his Outlines of Theology. In the Godhead, there is but one substance, one intelligence, one will, etc., and yet three persons eternally coexist of that one essence and exercise that one intelligence and one will. So, what they are saying is the divine will of Jesus Christ is never at odds with the divine will of the Father because there's only one God. He goes on to say later in that book, the early creeds and ecumenical councils up to and including the decision of the Council of Constantinople in 681, and that's where this issue was nailed down, closed the gradually perfected definition of the church doctrine as to the person of Christ and have been accepted by all Protestants since then, until 1980. There's more that could be said about this, maybe positives and negatives. I'm giving you the creedal orthodox uh, position, and I really can't afford to spend more time on it, but that was the last heavy doctrinal point. Even though we're going to proceed and talk about modern developments, now is the time where optimally you will be able to recall what we've covered in these other classes and take that and help us evaluate couple of modern developments. First, there's an issue of subordinationism between the Father and the Son. But there was a heretical subordinationism that goes way back in history. And just to define it, it's basically that the Son and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to God the Father in nature and being as in Arianism or semi-Arianism. That's where we talked about homoousian versus homoousian. They would be saying he's a similar substance, but not the same substance, which in, a, in essence is putting him at a lower subordinate to the Father in a way that was heretical. And why is it heretical? Because in this view within the Trinity, 
or the Son and the Spirit are ontologically inferior. We're talking about God in himself, ad intra. And so when they say ad intra, or the eminent trinity, there is something inferior by way of subordination between the Father and the Son. That's heresy. But we're not, ta- we're not going to be talking about the heretical subordination because there is another subordinationism very popular among evangelicals today. And it's called the eternal subordination of the Son, which doesn't sound too good. But this is an understanding that I call ESS, eternal subordination of the Son. It became popular in the publication, or it began to become popular in the publication of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology in 1985. According to the proponents of this view, the eternal father-son relationship implies a fundamental eternal subordination within the Trinity. That sounds suspicious, but they, they try and explain that. This fundamental aspect of the Trinity is then used to support the argument for authority submission, authority slash submission in gender roles in family, church, and society, which we term broadly today complementarianism. Now, I think in general CBC tends to be complementarians. I'm a complementarian. There are plenty of strong arguments for authority submission in gender roles within limits from the New Testament without trying to make the Trinity a pattern which establishes that. And that's the rub, in my view. So let's go a little further. ESF believes that this eternal authority submission is fundamental to the very fact that there is a father-son relationship. They now refer to their view as eternal relations of authority and submission, which would be ERAS instead of ESS because they're trying to distance themselves from the word subordination because they began receiving a pretty good deal of flack. So if you were to look it up now, they would refer to their view as ERAS. I'm still going to say ESS because they just changed it this summer after a lot of heated discussions. Now get this. They say orthodoxy is supposedly maintained since this subordination or submission is a relational distinction in personal properties. Not any difference in divine being or essence of the persons. So they're trying to say we are not the heretical subordinationists. We're not saying there's a difference in their being or a subordination or submission in their essence. We're talking about a relational distinction in personal properties. And at first blush, you can see why they're saying that. And you can say, well, you know, let me hear a little bit more because that sounds better. So the lines were drawn. ESS uh, proponents like Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, and others stood across from anti 
ESS guys like Millard Erickson, Keith Giles, and others. And this goes back 20 years, this kind of discussion, because what this was is a, a debate between egalitarians and complementarians. These guys are against any idea of gender roles of authority and submission. They're egalitarians. And so if you've ever read or studied about complementarians, there's always contra-egalitarians who don't agree with this idea of authority and submission between man and woman, man and wife, etc. There's a book in our library which was published in 2012 called The New Evangelical Subordinationism. It's got about 20 essays in it. About two-thirds of them are pro-ESS, but they do have about a third of them that are anti-ESS, and you can see all these issues that reflect these early debates in that book. But this past year, specifically beginning June 1st, the debate broadens. Many complementarians join the debate strictly on concerns of tampering with the Trinity apart from the gender relation issue. They began to call on these guys and say, well, forget gender relations. What are you saying about the Trinity? Now, now say that again. And so it started. And there has been heated debates all summer while I was trying to prepare for this class. According to the ESS guys, the Father eternally exercises authority over the Son, and the Son eternally submits to the Father, a pattern which informs gender relations. When you're talking about eternity, you're talking about outside of time. We're not talking about eternity past. We're talking about that when God created the universe, he created a space-time continuum. He created time. God is above and beyond time. In eternity, the Father exercises authority over the Son. There's nothing that exists over which to exercise authority and submission with regard to. I personally think that's impossible. I don't know how you can talk about it in eternity. Opponents say the idea of eternal authority submission cannot be sustained without the idea of opposing or different wills ad intra. How can you talk about authority and submission in the imminent trinity without the idea of different wills? And that's exactly what we just talked about with two-will Christology and the fact that will is associated with nature, not person. So that's what these complementarians were saying. Is, wait a minute, look, wait, wait just a minute. Some of what you're saying just doesn't sound right. In fact, it's unorthodox. And so the debate raged on. Opponents also said that the implication of an eternal ontological distinction in the wills of the persons within the Trinity is clearly unorthodox. And they were trying to ask these guys, 
have you even read the creeds? And they may have been exposed to them and read them in a textbook, but they didn't grow up in the creeds. So they didn't, in my opinion, they didn't, they're low evangelical biblicists. They, they don't know the creeds. They didn't know they were going off the rails until these guys started saying, and I'm talking about Trinitarian scholars from America, Australia, England, all, all of them saying, wait a minute, you guys are saying something that's not right. As we noted earlier, two-will Christology associates will with nature, not person. The Godhead is one in being and nature, hence the triune God has one will. Now, there are scholars who disagree with that. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland are noted philosophical theologians who disagree with the two-will Christology and therefore disagree with the fact, with the orthodox view that God has, the triune God has but one will. Introducing eternal authority submission into the Trinity necessitates a distinction in wills among the three persons ad intra. And that's one of the basic issues that's going on in these arguments. It may be appropriate to speak of authority submission with regard to Christ's earthly ministry or his mission as the last Adam, but that's in the economy, ad extra. That's the distinction between the mission of the Son and the mission of the Father ad extra, not ontologically, not, not internal to themselves. Specifically, it, it's in relation to the fact that Christ became incarnate. If you remember Philippians 2, 6, and 7, the form of God and the form of the servant, what did Christ give up when he took on human flesh? Some divine prerogatives take on the form of a servant. As the man, Christ Jesus, as the last Adam to fulfill a mission and his submission and obedience is in reference to his human nature and his human will, not his divine. Scott Horrell, who's a professor at DTS, uh, he's pro-ESS. I think he has an article in that book I just mentioned. He says, we may say there are both one mind and three minds, one will and three wills as each divine person indwells the other. I tried to see how he explained that, and I couldn't. It's almost double talk, but that's his view, and he's a, he's a smart guy, and he argues for this. And so I'm, all I'm saying is there are people that, well, like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, they're great, smart guys. They've been a blessing to the church for years and years and years. This, uh, this particular issue, though, is an issue. Glenn Butner, another uh, seminary professor, argues that to posit such terms as obedient and submission that imply a distinction of wills, remembering now what we were saying with the diathletic two-will Christology, necessitates a distinction of natures. If there's a distinction of wills in the Trinity then there's a distinction of natures 
Because will is associated with nature. If there's a distinction in natures, what are you talking about? Tritheism. Three gods. They each have a distinct will. They have each have a distinct nature. They are each a distinct person. And they form a pattern for us for gender relations. I'm not sure I can buy that. But I do want you to know I may be giving you a prejudiced view. There are arguments by Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, to the contrary. I encourage you to look at some of those arguments yourself. One divine will or three? Surely we can't say the Father has a will, the Son has a will, and the Spirit has a will. But rather the Father wills, the Son wills, and the Spirit wills the numerically singular divine will. However, each do so in a manner appropriate to their hypostatic personhood at extra not internally but as they relate to creation to the world to, to people to the plan of redemption so Jesus Christ does something in accordance with his divine will the father in scripture we may see the father doing something in conjunction with his divine will but those are never at odds they're always the same and that's that's a good point because that's what some of these complementarians that jumped in this, they're saying, wait a minute, what you say may be true at extra, but you seem to be saying that this is something that exists at intra, the very nature of the Trinity within themselves. It's obvious they needed to come take your class. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not really. Those guys, no, they're way way above my head. But you're exactly right. And that's one of the arguments. They're saying, what you say may be appropriate at extra, but you're, you're talking about eternal submission. How can you have eternal authority and submission? Yes. And to me, Grudem and Ware should just say, yeah, we're unorthodox on that point. But they won't. They keep trying to convince these guys they're orthodox. But the orthodox doctrine won't, doesn't allow that. They're saying, look, Either change what you're saying or admit you're unorthodox. They won't, they won't do that. They want to be orthodox. They say they believe in uh, two-will Christology. But So you, there you got Scott Hurl saying, well, you can say you've got three wills and one will. Three and one, three and one. So it's puzzlement to me in some respects. A couple of quotes. Whenever the Trinity is construed to support a prior belief like gender relations... Complementarianism, in this case, the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is invariably corrupted and distorted. Kevin Giles, an egalitarian, said the quote. Michael Byrd, a well-regarded Australian theologian, said, you know what, he's exactly right. Robert Lethem, a noted Trinitarian scholar, the phrase, the eternal subordination of the Son, is outside the boundaries of traditional Trinitarian orthodoxy or what he said there Michael Byrd went on to say those using Trinitarian relationships as a rationale for complementarianism are barking up the wrong tree you're trying to say that the father-son relationship is 
correlates to authority, submission, and a husband-wife relationship? What's the Holy Spirit, the kid? (laughs) This is not a family we're talking about. We can argue for complementarianism without tampering with the Trinity. That's my bottom line. I'm still a complementarian, but I think these guys went off the rails. So how do you avoid speculation? The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct hypostases or persons within the Godhead. The names given the three in Scripture, you know, we didn't name we didn't name them the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God named Himself the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those names reflect their eternal causal relationship that we talked about last week. The distinctive personal properties are limited by the creeds. That is, an unbegotten father, a begotten son, and a spirit proceeding from both. Those are the distinctive personal properties, not authority submission. The relationships of origin, or those distinctive personal properties, this is by Stephen Holmes, a a Scottish scholar on the Trinity, The relationships of origin express, establish relational distinctions between the three existent hypostases. No other distinctions are possible or permissible. But he's speaking from an orthodox creedal standpoint. That book's in our library. Stephen Holmes, The Quest for the Trinity. So there we are. Modern Development One. I've got to press on. The social trinity. This is, in some ways, it's, uh, it overlaps some of what the ESS guys are saying, but it's, it's come from a different crowd of people with different intentions. But it's based on the works of the likes of uh, Jürgen Moltmann, Miroslav Wolf, Cornelius Plantinga, Wolfhard Pannenberg, and others. If you don't re- recognize those names, that's fine. One that most people will note is if they've at least heard of Jürgen Moltmann. But in this social trinity view, uh, which incidentally became popular through, uh, began to become popular through Moltmann's book called The Trinity and the Kingdom, The Doctrine of God in 1981. So he's like one of the early... Uh, promoters of this view of the Trinity. God here is not to be imagined as some individual entity that has three sides, aspects, modes, or dimensions of existence. Saying that is a slam against Orthodox Trinitarianism. You're not to imagine him as some individual entity. God is instead to be thought of as a collective a group, a society of three, bound together by mutual love and accord and the self-giving of its members. Why are they even pushing this kind of view? Well, in their, in their view, traditional Trinitarian theology has supposedly made the doctrine irrelevant to practical concerns such as politics, gender relations, and family life. They say the doctrine of the Trinity has nothing to do with these things. Well, yeah, maybe they're saying he's completely other and the doctrine of the Trinity... They don't like the fact that he's completely other. Right. 
But see what they what they're saying is we don't see in the Trinity anything to help us address political governments and their style, gender relations and their style, family life and its style. They're not even concerned with the fact that the Trinity means everything to the Christian, to the church, to our worship, to our prayer. No. Society. We want the Trinity to be relevant to society. The social view seeks to use the inner life of the Trinity, now we're talking ad intra, as a basis for social vision. So that's where they're coming from. A social understanding, see, if you understand it that way, is a way to combat the evils of individualism, patriarchy, oppressive forms of political and church organizations. That's what we need. And the implication is that traditional Trinitarianism, even backhandedly, supports individualism, patriarchy, oppressive forms of political government, and ecclesiastical church organizations. So let's do away with that. We're not going to think about the Trinity that way anymore. Moltmann writes, this is good, it is not the monarchy of a ruler, we have one God, right, monotheistic, but it's not the monarchy of a ruler that corresponds to the triune God, it is the community of men and women without privileges and without subjugation. That's what corresponds to the Trinity. And it's got things upside down. It's defining the Trinity by society instead of letting the Trinity tell us about society. It sounds like communism, doesn't it? At least socialism. Now, there are di- this is not a monolithic view, but there are three things that you will find in all the variations. A certain understanding of the term person in regard to the Trinity a particular picture of history of the doctrine of the Trinity, and the patristic concept of perichoresis is used, they make a big deal out of this, is used as a way to make the three one and make the Trinity a more more social or relational doctrine. So let me just say briefly, and I can't really go into this, we're running short of time. You remember the caveats with person. They are quick to let person be used in its full sense. No caveats. They love that. And they go back to the patristics and say, you know what? The Western church, you know, like Augustine and those guys, they, they glommed on to this monotheistic idea and then sought a way to understand the three. If you look at the Eastern Church, they were more focused on the three and seeking to understand that how can the three be a unity. So they're trying to say, this was the right way to look at it. Y'all didn't. This was the wrong way to look at it, the Western Church. But in what I've read, this kind of conclusion comes from a very selective reading of the Church Fathers. It was the Cappadocian fathers in the East that helped nail down every creed and doctrine that we've talked about. They were united in defining the Trinity and the bounds of Trinitarian theology. 
And then they really like this, like this uh, word perichoresis. You know, the emblem where it's got like three ghostly figures circling around or whatever it is. Well, Korain, which forms the latter part of that word in the Greek, uh, is also where we get the word choreography. And so they look at perichoresis as the divine dance. And you can find some people referring to the divine dance based on this uh, term that use it in a good sense. But to, to my way of thinking, the social Trinitarians are using it in a way that's bizarre. It's almost like if these three entities are holding hands and if they spin around fast enough, you end up with one God. Cornelius Plantinga speaks of the Trinity as a divine, transcendent society or community, get this, of three fully personal and fully divine entities. What? Does something there not ring true? Following the lead of Moltmann, Wolf maintains that perichoresis denotes a mutual self-giving in such a way that divine unity is determined by mutuality or the relation of the persons. There are three fully divine entities, but they are so mutually indwelling that that mutual indwelling or circumcession, to use the Latin word, is where you get unity. Not there's one God who subsists in three persons, but there's three persons who somehow interrelate with each other in such a way that we have unity. They don't even say one God. Where does the unity, one God, come from? The mutual relation of three divine entities. To the defenders of the traditional Western model... The social model borders on tritheism, the belief in three separate gods. It comes so close, you have to get them to explain how it's not. And the more they love talking about it, the more you say, wait a minute, it sounds again like you're talking about three gods who somehow are so mutually involved with each other that creates a unity. To defenders of the social model, on the other hand, they say the traditional model is so monotheistic that it borders on modalism, which we talked about, reducing the three persons to three modes of one person. But to me, that's not the very strong argument. I mean, the whole point of the Nicene Creed was to fence off modalism on one hand and tritheism and subordinationism, Arianism on the other. These, had, these guys had modalism in mind when they wrote the creeds. They're, they wrote words which prevent us from modalism. So I, I think that's kind of a weak argument, really. And on the other hand, I think that's kind of a strong argument, the way they, these, some of these guys talk. And finally, although the full reality of God defies exhaustive description... The Nicene Fathers successfully avoided modalism, Arianism, and tritheism without going beyond Scripture. So in conclusion, 
I have presented the traditional doctrines of the Trinity and the person of Christ from a pro-Nicene Orthodox perspective. Not all people are fully on board with all of that. I'm just saying that's where I was coming from. I personally have serious reservations regarding these two modern developments that we discussed tonight. To me, it seems clear that in certain areas they're unorthodox. I'm not going to call them heretics. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> right, Don? We don't do that anymore. But they should admit they're unorthodox and they're coming up with something new. The orthodox creeds have proven true over the centuries and are fully endorsed by post-Reformation Protestantism. They provide, and I guess this is the point I will end with, they provide needed guardrails for the continuing development in Trinitarian theology. So if you're going to talk about new things about the Trinity, recognize that there are some guardrails there that you need to be aware of. And so if you're going to step over the rails defined by the creeds, ask yourself, why did they put this rail here? What were their arguments against what I'm getting ready to say? And go back and find out. Instead of just stepping over the bars and coming up with new stuff and waiting till somebody, waiting till you publish and somebody says, wait a minute, what are you doing? At least be aware of what you're doing. And that's how I think these creeds can be a guardrail for our developing theology, especially Trinitarian and Christology. Any questions? Don? A new version of that, I would say, right, you know, we had the social gospel back in liberalism in the in the early part of the last century. But yes. Pardon? Is that liberation theology? There's liberation theology in that. Some of the some of the writers for social Trinitarianism are come from that viewpoint of liberation theology. Uh in like South America and stuff like that. You're right. So but it's it, it's a social it's a social paradigm to try and make let's define the Trinity in a way that that helps us say no no, no hierarchy here, no patriarchy here. You're stressing individualism. That's not the Trinity. You're uh, you're setting up a hierarchy. That's not the Trinity. This form of government doesn't doesn't fit with our social view of the Trinity. That f- form of government needs to be done away with. And and like Don said, you start thinking socialism, communism. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight. We thank you for the discussion. Uh, I know that some of these things I've said are uh, pushing my own uh, viewpoint. I hope that uh, those who are here will do some study on their own and come to their own conclusions. Uh, I just pray that uh, all in all that your triune self would be honored. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.